Hello, how are you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you this week? Everything good? I think everybody's a little bit happier because the sun is peeping out and making everybody smile. I know it is me. This week, it's episode 39, and we sit down with actor and filmmaker Tim Plaster. It's about her. More of that in a second. So, last week, I was away out of the country, and I was uh, trying not to turn my phone on and have a bit of a break. Uh, And I turned it on on Tuesday, and I got a message from producer Griff to say that the Two Shot Podcast has been very successful and we have been nominated in the British Podcast Awards. We are absolutely over the moon, I can't tell you. Um, We're nominated in the Best Culture Podcast Award category. Now, that's voted for by the judges and we'll find out more about that at the awards due on May the 19th. Of course, we'll let you know, don't worry. But there's something you can do as a listener because there is a listener's vote where you can vote for the Two Shot Podcast. It's dead simple, it's dead quick. Go to the British Podcast Awards site, just Google it, you'll find it. Go there to the Listener's Choice Award. You search for the Two Shot Podcast. Click Submit. Bingo, you've voted. Now, you can only do that once. And look, we're realistic. Last year, do you know what won? Commode and Mayo's movie show. And I think they've got a few more listeners than us. But you know what? We've got to be in it to win it. And we need your help. So can you get that done? Bless your cotton socks. So, what else? Oh, I wanted to do a big shout out to Danny Lee uh, and everybody at the BFI who made Saturday, just gone, uh, the Working Class Heroes event at the BFI. Such a success. Um, It was kind of madness throughout the day. There was loads and loads of people there. Um, and we had a great debate, and I think what Danny started is really let the touch paper for something, um, and I think we're moving on in a positive direction. If you did turn up, if you popped down, thanks so much, and I'm sorry that we couldn't get to answer ever. I know there's so many people sticking their hands up and who wanted to discuss things and ask questions, but I think, as Danny said, I think this is just the start. So, yeah, watch this space. So this week... It's episode 39. We travel to London to meet Tim Plester. Now, you might know Tim as an actor. He's popped up in all sorts of stuff over the years. You'll definitely know him from Game of Thrones. And you may know him as a filmmaker. He's made some fantastic, hilarious short films. And more recently, over the years, he's started to make documentaries. His last one that uh, came out a few months ago was... was an absolute stonker. It's called The Ballad of Shirley Collins. Um, It's done very, very well at the festivals. So if you haven't seen it, do go and check it out. But look, let's get on with it. This is episode 39 with Tim Plester. I'll see you at the end. Yeah, we don't bring that up. (laughs) It's not about me. Not about me. It's about you. I'll never do one. I'll never do this. 
Never. No? No. You not do yourself? No. What, like Richard Herring playing snooker? <laughs> when did he do that? He plays snooker, he has snooker games by himself and commentates. Does he? Yeah. What, with it's an called, audience? No, just him by himself. It's called Me One and Me Two. Snooker. Because I... I plays himself to, at snooker. Yeah, I used to play myself at golf. Did you? Yeah. One would play quite re- in a, quite a reckless way, going for everything, and the other one would be very steady, conservative... And um, I, I can't remember who used to win. No, I didn't do it often. I did it once when I was bored on the Isle of Man. Do you, mean you can't remember who used to win? You? No, <laughs> reckless or conservative. Which, <laughs> right. which facet of myself was, uh, was triumphant? <laughs> I think it was the one who was going for it, rather than playing within himself, you know? What age was this that you would do this? Oh, this was... Uh, Late twenty. I mean, late twenties. Quite. Late, I, mean, I was quite old. Late twenties. <laughs> I was quite I old. You, I thought you could say like seven or eight. Well, if you're seven or eight, you're not allowed on a golf course. It's not going to happen. I used to live eight. near a golf course. Yeah, well, you probably snuck on, but I did sneak on it to steal golf balls. Didn't play golf. No, we used to play golf. But we just age. thought I would try and steal the balls. My granddad used to take me when I was about seven or eight. And when we were behind, far enough away from the clubhouse, he used to let me hit a few. Did he? Yeah. Was he a golfer? He loved his golf, yeah, yeah. And my main memory of that is one day we were there when um, the Coventry City football team were on the course as well and we saw Jimmy Hill, who was the then manager. I mean, you know, you know what I'm like with sports, but I am aware well, of, you do, I am Jimmy, aware of yes, who well, Jimmy Hill yes, is. Jimmy, yes, Jimmy Hill. Because... You know, there was a time, you know, we're of a certain age where if school children did lie, the other school children would go, oh, yes, chinny, rack on. Chinny, rack on. And they used to shorten that to Jimmy L, Jimmy L. Jimmy Chin, that. Jimmy yeah. Chin, Chinny. I once, um, I started to take make a list of all the variants of that at one point. Which would be? Um, Chinny okay, Rackon. So you've got Chinny Rackon, Jimmy Hill. Jimmy Hill, Jimmy. But it goes beyond It goes beyond this. It, what I found out is when I spoke to people of a similar age to us from different parts of the country, <laughs> they all had their own variants. Please which tell Which nothing me. to do with Jimmy Hill. What's the Go. Ooh, fan tut. What? Yeah. What? Ooh, fan tut. Who coined that? Uh, Simon Farnaby told me that one. Well, where's Farnaby from? He's up near um, Newcastle Way. What's that the kind of the university town you come before Newcastle? Uh, What's it called? Durham. 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 He's from Durham. Yeah. So in Durham, Fantat. Ooh, Fantat. Right. Any more? Yeah. <laughs> Yebo. Ebo. Ye. Yebo. Yebo. Right. I'm gonna get. Can I get? Can oh, I guess on, where they were from? Yeah. Go on. So e e ye. Yeah. No. Ye. Ye. Yebo. Yebo. I'm gonna Yebo. go west. No. no. Producer Griff shaking his head. That sounds like an Eastern Bowl sound. <laughs> it was the Scouser who told me about that. Oh. Yibo. What Scouser would that be? Would it's we an know? actor called Ravi Kapoor. All right. Um, Any other variants? Loads, yeah. Oh my God, we're all going off here today. We've Ooh, gone from Jimmy Hill. Ooh, Tutankhamun. <laughs> Tutankhamun! 
it's quite good, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, quite a long thing to do if someone's wisdom, lying. The beard of wisdom. Mm, to, yeah, because if you think about Carmoon, he's got that weird bit on the chin, hasn't he? Yeah, has. so it's clever. Ooh, Tutankhamun. Hit yeah. me with another. They're all said in the same way. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Ooh. Um, hang on, can I remember any more? Fanta, Ebo, Tutankhamun. I mean, this is what mind. the podcast is all no, about, wasted really. It. Wasted it. it. So while we're I down think to those are the three main ones that I remember. I don't think Recon, we need. obviously. Recon, because it's just Recon. A... Recon. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy Recon. St- oh, yeah. Always <sighs> went for the chinny. Yibo. The chinny Recon. But, you know, who knows? Nowadays, I might even Yibo. go for the Yibo. <laughs> I don't think I'll go full to it in Carmoon, because it's just... You can just go to Carmoon. Oh, can you? Yeah. You can shorten that. Mm, Carmoon. There's no rules. There's, there's, no no rule. there's no rules with the chin out. Yeah. What was where was school for you while we're on the school subject? Um where did you grow up? So I grew up in uh North Oxfordshire. Uh, I began life in a small village called Adderbury. I love that no I don't think anybody's ever said I began life. It's so beautiful. I began life. <laughs> I began life. Um I commenced uh, <laughs> The Art of Living, in a small um, um, village called Adderbury. And then we moved to the big town um, when my... just before, I think just before my sister was born. What was the big town? Banbury. Banbury? Mm. Oxford? Banbury in Oxfordshire, yeah. yeah. North Oxfordshire. Um, most famous son from Banbury, do you know? Oh, is it sport-related? It's not. You might get this one. Right. Music related. Oh, Oxford. I mean, to be honest, we're not proud of him. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that could be a long list. Could be a long list. <laughs> uh, era? Can you hit me 70s. with a clue? 70s. Yes. Ooh. 70s, yeah. With this 70s. Glam. Yeah, 70s I think glam. Kind of you know, likes, you? likes a trip to Thailand. Indeed he does. Yeah, we go. We don't need to say his name on this podcast. I'm not going to... You know, it's all Paul about positive. Gad. Paul Gad. Yeah, yeah, let's just go with, Gad. let's go with Gad. Talking of people who change their names, go on. which we kind of are, um, one of my favourite change names is this one. So um, let me get this right. Um, Stuart Granger, the actor Stuart Granger. Right. You know his work, kind of early 20th century, early mid-20th century. Stuart Granger, not his real name. Gone. Real name, James Stewart. Really? Yes. So if he hadn't changed his name to Stuart Granger, James Stewart, Jimmy would, Stewart, would have would had not to have been able to be James Stewart. Imagine, a lovely, imagine a lovely piece of trivia there. A little, you know, divergent alternate reality. James Stewart being one of my favourite actors. One of mine as well. Uh-huh. In fact, that game that you play. We used to play if you know if they were going to make a film of you, who would ideally play you in the film? Yeah, but who actually would they end up getting? Yeah, because they couldn't afford that person. <laughs> For me, it was always James Stewart if they were going to do my life story. But obviously, they wouldn't be able to get not just because he was dead, but they wouldn't be able to get James Stewart. So they'd end up with Nicholas Lindhurst. <laughs> <laughs> that we're slamming uh, no, Mr. Lindhurst. No, at he was all. available. I mean, if he's available. Uh, he was available. Not working at the moment, I don't think. He's all right. 
You don't need to, that really, does said, it? yeah, I can make the dates. Yeah, make those dates re- work. Maybe we should reach out to him. Get him on the podcast. Doesn't, you should get him Well, here's the thing that I've always found quite fascinating about Nicholas Lendhurst. Yeah. Even at the height of Only Fools mania. Yes. It was a big, huge show, still wasn't it? Still is to a lot of people, yeah. It still is, but, you know, that was a time when, you know... The, the, the viewing figures were, were huge, weren't they? Yes. Yeah. Never did that many interviews, did he? Really? You ne- I think you're right, yeah. Because yeah. I, I, he, always, he always struck me as someone... I don't know anything about Nicholas Lindhurst. And then I remember hearing him, and I think it was on the radio. Yeah. Doing a very rare interview. And he spoke so well. You know, it was not real, like Rodders. Not like Rodders at all. No. I mean, he sounded like he was from upstairs rather than downstairs. Yes, and that shocked me. New Peckham rather than old Peckham. I don't know. I don't think I've ever been to Peckham. It's changed, hasn't it? <laughs> Gentrific- anyway, we're gentrification. Not, we're not here to talk about Nicholas Lindhurst. No, but I mean you're right. He's it's one of those people who you don't. He's really, really kept know himself to about. himself. I think though. he has. Yeah, he wouldn't pop up on um, you know on the interview circuit, would he? He wouldn't be seen getting thrown out of a bar at three in the morning. Not that we know. Is, of. You know, is he married? Children? We don't. I believe know. he is. Yeah, but you you kind of don't yeah, know. You don't, do you? I don't know. Kind of don't know. Basically, the British keeps his head down, does the work. <laughs> Let's the work speak for itself. Yeah. Tell me about your work at school, Tim Plester. I went to quite a tough, rough secondary school, so you kind of had to. You not a good be... group of friends. Um, I had a few good friends. I mean, but it was um, you kind of had to keep your wits about you and not not be perceived to be you know a teacher's pet or a, or a boffin, you know. You had to kind of not show any be one, You had to kind of be one of the boys a little bit. Yeah. Um, which is probably where that behaviour comes from, on one level. Um, but yeah, I used to escape. My my favourite lessons were drama and and art, really, um, English language, those kind of things. Oh, were you doing any sort of extracurricular sort of drama or acting classes out of school, or was that catered for? Well, um, t- to be honest, yeah, I mean, the extracurricular stuff I, I did is probably, is, well, not even probably, is definitely um, the reason why I've ended up doing um, this thing for a living, because I did do drama at school, but what I was uh, lucky to do um, as a kind of, uh, in, in that period of secondary school education is there was a local Amdram theatre group that my dad got me involved with. Called? My dad, they were called the Mill Theatre Group. They were in Banbury. Um, and they, they put on shows quite regularly, and I got involved with the very first production they did, which was a production of Lark Rise. which is, Well, without the Tecanderford. Why? We did, Why? We did Tecanderford <coughs> later. It's basically... Oh, is it two separate most, things? Most people who are familiar with anything to do with Lark Rise know the TV fairly recent neutered BBC TV version. But um, prior to that, there were two um, phenomenally good 
stage productions, which was done at the National Theatre. And they did Lark Rise first, and then they did Candleford later. And, the, and those plays themselves are then based on books by um, a writer called Flora Thompson. Yeah, I knew your books. Um, so, what's in, I mean, so what's interesting about all that and how it connects to me is that Flora Thompson wrote about Lark Rise, um, which is where she grew up, but that's the fictional name that she gave to the, the little hamlet, which is actually called Juniper Hill. And Juniper Hill, the real um, place where Flora Thompson grew up, is about 10 miles from Adderbury, where I grew up. Right. So there was this connection there with this material that was written about a part of the country that uh, my family was from. And so we went to see it when it was on at the, at the National Theatre. They did this um, promenade performance, it was, and it had live folk music in it. And um, it's the reason why I'm an actor. I went to see it as a kid. I sat on my dad's shoulders. And How old are you? It was done in 1978, so I must have been seven or, or eight. Wow. And, you know, I'd never seen anything like it before or since, to be honest. It was just such a thrilling thing to be witness to. Uh, so, yeah, the, the action was going on around you. The music was kicking in. Um, uh, it was just... It, it, changed, it changed my life, really did, seeing that show. And then we then, the Mill Drama Group, then did the first ever amateur production of Lark Rise. The first one? The first ever Amdram. So not, not only but three years after it had been on at the, at the National, wow. they got the rights to do it um, in the... Um, the town hall in Banbury. And it was your dad that got you involved in it? Yeah, well, they needed a young, uh, a young boy, one of the parts. Basically, the, 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 the part which is based on Flora Thompson's actual younger brother, uh, who ultimately ended up going to the First World War and, and not coming back. Uh, Edmund, his name is Edmund Timms, is the character's name. And they needed someone to play Edmund Timms. And my dad said, well, I've got a young boy he quite likes acting, messing about. And was, sorry, was your dad in the drama group? So, yeah, my dad was in the drama group as right. well. So my dad was into Amdram. Um, and and so your mum? Was your mum into it? Mum wasn't, no. no. It was very much something that my dad did. Um, so, yeah, I got involved in this production of Lark Rise um, with the local theatre group, which my nan was also in. Really? My nan played one of the old so it's ladies. So down. Yeah, and... Um, I think and my uncle was in the band, I think, because we did the live band thing as well. Um, and it was, you know, it was about folk roots and uh, agrarian past. And there was kind of, it was around the same time that um, Morris dancing had been revived in my village and all this connects to kind of stuff I've ended up doing later in my life. But... Uh, so a lot of the Morris men were in the play as well, and I, it was just—it was just um, the combination of having seen the play and then being involved with this Amdram version of it a few years later just kind of cemented everything for me in terms of this is what you want to be. Kind of, this is what I want to do. I mean, I don't know if there's um, any way I can ever ever do it, but. Um, I, I definitely fueled everything in me that this is where I want to put my energies on into. And then they, the Mill Drama Group, then carried on doing stuff uh, after that. And I was, they would always find a part for me. 
So you carried on doing it. Yeah, and I think what was really interesting about that for me as a, as a, as a young boy or you know teenager is that, yes, I would do my stuff at, um, at school with my peers, my contemporaries, but then I would go off and do these shows with grown-ups. So that was a really interesting experience for me to be acting with people who were, you know, not my age. Doing those two things, did they work in tandem with each other or did you feel that the stuff you were doing in school didn't really speak to you, but the stuff you were doing with the adults outside of school, you were getting more from, you were learning more from? I I think I did feel I was getting more from working with the adults. Um, Partly because they were doing, you know, we did The Crucible. It was one of the plays I remember doing. Um, I played the jailer in that. I must have been 14, 15. Wow. Um, Were you touching on plays sort of of that calibre at school or is it a bit more pedestrian? My memory of stuff we did at school is, 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 has kind of been shut away. All I can remember doing is um, Midsummer Night's Dream and playing Bottom, which I, I quite enjoyed doing. But I, it was one of those things which I don't think has probably changed is that there was actually... My memory is there was me and one other guy doing drama the rest were girls and the rest were girls yeah. so we did Midsummer Night's Dream and all the mechanicals were girls um, and I'm, you know I'm not saying that's a, that's a bad thing no, but it was, kind of, it, was an, it was a kind of odd thing um, whereas you know when I was doing stuff with the, the Amdram group you know men were playing the male parts women were playing the female parts and 70 year old people were playing the 70 year old parts and 15 year old boys were playing the 15 year old parts which felt a bit more i think um, that's kind of uh not unheard of but certainly when i before i got asked to leave amateur (laughs) you kicked out so that's another story um there was you know 60 year old guys playing a role for a 20 year old and you know a 15 year old girl playing the part of a 25 year old and looking at those two together as a couple is seven shades of wrong Do you know, I, yeah, have yeah, real, yeah, I have yeah, real yeah, problems yeah. with that and yeah. there always seem to be a hierarchy well they've been doing this they've been here since blah 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 yeah. and they in the daytime they're the bank manager of the, the, yeah, so yeah. therefore they come here and they take this part and blah 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 so that's great that that didn't happen with yours well I think that they, were, they were kind of quite unique this this Amdram company because there was another company in, in, the, in the town called the Banbury Cross Players was it uh, and was they, it <coughs> they were West Side more, Story uh, pretty much yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, never the twain shall meet uh, and they were a bit more what you'd expect from an, uh, an Amdram. So they were churning company. out the, the classics. Yeah, they, that's what they were doing. And we, we, when the, the people that were involved with the Mill Drama Group were, as I said, they were, they were Morris dancers. They, 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 were, they were there because their mates were there and they wanted to have a beer. And, oh, we've got to learn some lines now and do this. And they were, they were, quite, they were quite an anarchic bunch, is my, is my fond memory of them. Um, and so it wasn't like, it wasn't like that at all. Um, um, and I just, yeah, that really had a, you know, a really important impact on me as um, in those formative years. And I think it also kind of carries on, that kind of thinking carries on over into, you know, when you go to, or my experience, you know, when you, when you go to drama school and, and, and you spend a lot of time maybe playing roles 
that are outside of your playing yeah, yeah playing be, age be, or, be, because it's or, about no no but it's act it's all about acting isn't it you've got to act so you might have to play a you know a 50 year old man so you know the, the white boot polish comes out and you do that and then but of course the minute you leave drama school you realize there are 50 year old actors who, who are going to play those parts so yeah. what you need to be good at playing is a 22 year old <laughs> so that was what was i doing doing all those other parts that seems kind of quite wasted in a way that i spent all that time trying to stretch myself and maybe i mean maybe it isn't maybe my, my, i'm wrong and that actually that helps you play yourself because essentially that's what you end up being asked to do to play kind of variations uh, uh, of, of yourself yeah. basically and that seems to me almost the trick of it um and probably why acting on one level is so difficult is because ultimately it's actually really easy just be yourself you know be a be a human being you know how to do that what are you doing? Why are you putting all this extra stuff on it? Just, just sit and talk to somebody. You know, yes, there's there's scripted lines and scripted emotions that you're meant to hit, but essentially, this is stuff that we all do every day. Yeah. In terms of interacting or not interacting with other human beings. Um, well, it's funny because so when I the closer you are playing yourself, I, I just what I guess I'm saying is it's easier to kind of just try and be you or a version of you, and that. I think helps you to maybe be more truthful in your performance. Do you think you were learning, or certainly stuff maybe subliminally started to seep in, seep, not steep, seep into you when you were uh, at the, was it Millbank, sorry? The no. drama group, they yeah. called the Mill Drama Group. Mill Drama Group, I don't know where I got yeah. Millbank from, sorry. The Mill Drama Group, do you think you were already starting your training there yeah i, I yeah i do because it it um it wasn't school it didn't feel like and obviously you, uh, you probably weren't treated like a child there were you not really no um i was i was i was um treated like one of the you know one of the gang of and the... i was in most of the, I, I, I was in all the shows they did for the first five or six years uh, they, as I say, they would always find a part for me, even if there wasn't an obvious one for me. They'd find... They might even invent one. They might even write one for me, even if there wasn't one. Um, we've got to give Tim something to do in this. Um, was your dad still doing it all these years as yeah, well? Yeah, my dad stayed in it all those years. Um, Is he still going, this? No, it... Uh, what happened? It stopped a, a number of years ago. They stopped doing stuff. Why? Um, I don't really know. It just... Um, was there no one there to carry... I think it just kind of it, they just kind of ran out of steam. I mean, my memory of it is there was. I mean, there's a lovely little um, addendum to this story, and so I am doing all of this stuff with the Mill Drama Group while I'm um, at secondary school. Uh, then I go off and do my training at um, Dartington College of Arts, is where I went, I which did, we'll come back um, to. I did four years there, and then I came back from having done my training. Um, and, I, and I lived with my parents for a while before I moved to London. And in that time, I, the, the Mill Drama Group was still going. And why, I, did, I did a show with them. Oh, did you? When I came back, yeah, uh, which my dad directed. And it was called The Clink. And it was by uh, a writer called Stephen Jeffries. And I discovered this play because during my 
training at Dartington, there was a, we had a year, our third year, where they, they kicked you out of college, basically, and you had to go out into the real world and get work experience, which you were then meant to bring back with you for your final year. And I went and worked with the, um, the new writing theatre company, Payne's Plough. And Stephen Jeffries uh, had written one or two plays for them, I think. And I, th- I, and I'm, I may be right in saying that when Payne's Plough did The Clink, Andy Serkis was in the cast. Really? Which is where I first came across the name Andy Serkis. I didn't see the show, but I had the, uh, I saw all the pictures and the reviews. Um, I may be wrong about that. He was in one of their shows around that time, and it may have been The Clink. So I basically had this script, which I took back to my dad and gave it to him, and he loved it. Uh, and so, yeah, when I came back from college, uh, we did a version of The Clink, and, um, and I, I was in it. It was the lead part I did. And I, I remember what I remember most about it is, um, I guess, I guess what I'd learned at college was I used I, I scared basically everybody else in the cast because I would pause <laughs> sometimes before saying my lines, and they always there was this look in their eyes whenever I did it of, is it me? Fair. Oh, no, it was more that kind of, is it me? Is oh, it is my it line? Me? Is it my line? And then, look, I would start again. And go, no, it's not me. It's not me. I didn't think it was me. You can see it in there. Because <laughs> that, on one level, is, is my memory of Amdram. It's like, you talk very quickly until you said all your lines, and then you stop. Now it must be my turn, and I say my lines, yeah. and I'll keep going until I stop, and then it must be you when I stop. And, and you know, so when I started messing around with that and actually doing pause for effect, um, there was a certain fear in, in, in the eyes, but... I don't know how much longer the theatre company carried on after that, but I, we, they were still going when I came back from. What a shame! It sounded like a good place to grow. Yeah, I mean, I think there was politics involved. I think they there lost their rehearsal space. I think is my is my memory of it, and all Probably got a bit as to, well. I think all yeah. of that. Yeah, I think it just wasn't. You know, no one was getting paid to do that. No, I think everyone was. Everyone was obviously getting older. Um, and I suppose if you, don't, away, if you, you don't know. have a, a new generation coming in, there were definitely wasn't a new generation well, coming in. So um, yeah, I think mate, it just kind of ran its its natural course, I think. But it was a really um, for a period there, it was a really kind of wonderful thing to be. And did your dad still do it, or did he still find somewhere else? Or? No, dad doesn't. Dad hasn't done it um, since they stopped. That was he didn't carry on with with it after the. I think he misses it. Some sort of creative output. I think he did. He went and played music for a while, which helped. Um, Because my dad's um, kind of a a good amateur um, drummer, percussionist. Um, Used to play in a blues band before he met my mum. Did he? I mean, I mean, amateur, amateur local group. Um, So he did that for a while, which I know he really enjoyed. Um, but he, yeah, he's kind of, he doesn't do anything like that anymore now. So I, I'm sure he does miss it on one level, but he's probably quite enjoys What does he do creatively then? Because um, he sounds like a very, someone that needs to unleash. Yeah, I think, you know, he's, 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 he's older now and he probably, he probably has the yearning, but maybe, maybe the body isn't willing anymore. I don't know. He spends a lot of time with his grandchildren and, you know, enjoys that, I think. And, yeah, I, I guess kind of vicariously lives a little bit through what I might be doing. Yeah. And, um, 
you know that's that's nice because you know I I owe him a lot really um, for taking me to see that play. If I suppose if you hadn't for have... getting me involved with that Amdram company for being you know and my mum comes into it you know when I, I I tell them I want to go and do this you know they're they're fully they supportive. were fully supportive they never tried to dissuade me from doing it um, and you know they were really helpful when I was at university and you know didn't have a lot of money and needed food parcels in fact not only only that but the first few years i lived in london and was signing on my dad would come up every three or four weeks with a food parcel for me to keep me going so yeah they were they were always really supportive of of the following the the dream yeah uh, yeah that that means you know that helped a lot it means a lot it does mean the world. It means everything to know you're supported, doesn't it? Instead of going, yeah. you know what? <clears throat> I appreciate that this is a it's a nice little dream you've got. Maybe you should let's have a backup. Let's yeah. have a let's have a because you a never know. You never yeah. know, and it'd be I'd I'd sleep in my bed <laughs> a bit more comfortable <laughs> if you got a degree in this, and then let's just yeah. So you never know. When you left school, how did you... How were the GCSEs? They were all right. Yeah? Yeah, I went... Uh, I did uh, A-levels. <clears throat> well, I'm old enough, I did O-levels. Oh, you did? I was, I was oh, the so last, you did CSEs and O-levels. I was the last year of the O-levels. Um, and then I did three A-levels. Um, I mean, this is a sign of... You know, going back to the school that I was at... Um, you couldn't do A levels at the secondary school I went to. You had to go to the the uh, the biggest the bigger school, Banbury School. You had to go to to do your A levels, and there was only me and I think six other people from my of... secondary school. Well, from my oh. from my secondary oh, school, crikey, who, right. who then went and did A levels um, at Banbury School, and I did um, English literature, uh, theatre studies, and art. Um, and I gave art up because it was just too... With that and theatre, there was just too much extra curricula. I had to make a decision um, about which one I wanted to really do. And it was never really a, an option to do art. Um, I mean, I loved it. And I, I particularly loved comic books, really. was I think I had, my, my other alternate career at one point was I wanted to be a comic book artist. Are you still, do you still tinker with that? Are you still... Not really. I mean, I'll do a little doodle on things, and people go, "Oh, that's good," but not nothing beyond that. I mainly just do little doodly self portraits of myself. Um, but I used to draw draw comic strips. I used yeah. to do. Yeah, they're, they're somewhere in a box. Um, you know, full issues. Ba- I mean, basically copying Marvel comics stuff, but you know, fully scripted with little. I used to ink it. I used to little. Out of writing a drawing board, and I would sit and I, I I research what kind of pens they used, and I drew it all up like I knew you were supposed to, and I scripted it. And or would you color it as well? Yeah, up to a point until I just I kind of got bored with the coloring because it was stopping me carry on doing the drawing because it was taking too long to color them as well. Right. So if you look at them back, that's like the first two pages might be colored and then it's just black and white. Is that a different ink. skill altogether though, the coloring? I mean, yeah. I mean, if you, if you, uh, 
if you look at a comic book credits, yeah, somebody somebody does the lettering, somebody does the Well, you've got the to colouring. pick those out and get those framed and put well, them up. I don't know if they're... I'm not sure quite how good they are, to be honest. But still, that's a, that's a little piece. My parents have got something on their, still on their wall in the family home that I did for A-level. Uh, not A-level, it must have been O-level. Or maybe it was, no, it was one of my A-level pieces before I quit. Uh... They've still got on the wall somewhere else. I look at that and I, every time I see it, I ask them politely to, to take say, it down. Or I basically say, it'd be fine. You could take that down. <laughs> I wouldn't be offended. No, it's always been there. And that's where it will stay. <laughs> so what was the college? Was it Dart- Did you say Dartington? Dartington College of Arts, uh, uh, which was uh, in the past tense because it doesn't exist anymore. It was in uh, Totnes, near Totnes in Devon. And what were you doing there? So it was a four-year... Um, uh, BA in theatre studies, and I and I tried to get into more traditional drama schools. Uh, I went to uh, Bristol and didn't get in. I auditioned. I auditioned for um, Guildford and didn't get in. Um, went up to Manchester. Uh, Poly. Didn't get in Manchester Poly yeah. mainly because I was uh, there was a period in my life when I was a big. Uh, Rick Mail and Aid Edmondson fan, and I knew they'd gone there, so I, I chose that, but I didn't get in. The only places I got into was uh, Crew and Al Sager. Again, that. that was a theatre theatre studies course, I think, rather than a straight um, acting course. And and then this um, this course uh, at Dartington, which um, again changed my life really I think those those four years I spent were you not were you not disheartened about the drama school stuff probably um, were a bit I mean I was yeah um, but you weren't going to let that dissuade you I just kind of had to rethink and I didn't go to drama schools I looked at doing it as um, degree courses instead and I had a year off and I didn't go travelling around the world what did you do I worked in Tesco's to save up to, um, just to kind of pay my way, really. I didn't. I don't remember saving much, um, but I worked as a on, on the wine and spirits stock control supervisor. I was, and I had to start work at five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Which never. I never got used to that. It used to hurt every single day getting up at that time. Are you quite? Um, are you a morning person, though? Yeah, I, I am. Say, but not. The, but not. I mean, that was. You know that that. That's ridiculous. That still hurts, even if you know. Still, want to have to get up that time to to go working now. It still still hurts a bit, although it's slightly different now because there's usually a nice warm car waiting for you outside. And certainly an incentive. Um, and uh, yeah, cook breakfast when you get to yeah. the other end, that kind of thing. But it's not nice when a child wakes you up at half past three in the morning. That's no, that's that's, that's different again, of course. Um, but yeah, um, I did. Yeah, I did that. I had a year off, and it kind of it, and it kind kind of resolved galvanised my desire even more that I wanted to do. Did you never think about, in that year off, re-auditioning? I don't think I realised it was even a possibility. I just thought, okay, they don't want me. I'll uh, I'll, I'll kind of have a rethink and how else can I approach it. Uh, And I did do, um, carried on doing bits of theatre while I was in that year off. Basically... When I did my A-levels, there was another kind of important part of my development in that, um, again, aside from my actual coursework, there was a a bit of a drama group that you could go to. Basically, he was given the choice between doing... You had to do something 
on a certain afternoon and you could either do uh, some form of PE yeah. or there was a drama option. Uh, and not that I don't enjoy uh, sports, but I decided to do the, the, um, the drama option. Um, and we ended up creating our own show, um, which I ended up uh, writing in the end because I've always, I've always enjoyed writing as well and still... I mean, there's a period of my career when I, I wanted to be a, actually a writer and not an actor at all. Um, and we wrote this play, kids' play. How, uh, how many people were in the group? I think there were about um, 12 or 14 people right, in that okay. group. And there's two things that are really in, in important about that group. One of them is that I meet my first ever proper girlfriend in that group. Right. Um, you know, I mean, my proper girlfriend i know what you mean but yeah. maybe the listeners might not know well, you know it was my yeah my oh, first time i'm with you um they're, and also the, the 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 drama teacher in uh, with that group so she wasn't she didn't teach me a level drama but she was teaching that little you know extracurricular thing she had been to dartington college of arts right so she was the first person who told me about this place so that stuck in my head somewhere when i came to kind of re-audition or rethink about where I could go instead. And we also, then we ended up doing, so we did this children's play, which was about um, a flower-powered superhero called Pansy Man. Set in the 70s. Who uh, I had created. No, it was set in the modern day. Oh, was it? But he was a, he was a, you know, he was a, he was a, a, a superhero for the modern age. He didn't really actually have any powers. Uh, well, he had the proportionate strength of a... Of a, of a flower, basically, which was nothing. Um, but he cared about the environment and, and green issues and environment. He wanted peace. He wanted peace in our time. Um, and he ended up then um, having four sequels. Really? Yes. There were five, I think there were five Pansy Man plays that I ended up writing in the end, and they became a bit of a cult hit Did they? in Banbury, yes. <laughs> Um, and so when I was back from, when I hadn't got into drama college and I was working in Tesco's, we, we did another one of these Pansy Man plays that I wrote and I was Pansy Man and, uh, and I directed it as well. It's kind of, you know, um, so I kept my, my oar in, if you like, during, during that year. And I, in fact, I used to remember writing this, I wrote most of the script when I was in Tesco's in the morning, ch- checking stock. And I would have a little bit of cardboard. And if ideas came to me, I would just write it down. While I was tying up how many bottles of that we had, I might write a line down on a bit of cardboard. And slowly that kind of assembled into a, uh, into a script. You had that walking home with just like a massive cardboard book full of notes. Essentially it was yeah. that, yeah. It slowly, I then transcribed it all out and it kind of fitted, loosely fitted together into some kind of um, ramshackle script. But, um, yeah, that's... It, it's the, the, the kind of the, the writing aspect of, of that is is really important as well. I think in my development, that I, I I wanted to because um, I'd done that at uh, at second at primary school as well. I wrote my first play. Did you? Yes, it was an adaptation of uh, The Hand of the Baskervilles, <laughs> um, which um, I wrote, and uh, I'm not sure if I even credited Conan Doyle. It was Who? it was all my idea. Um, <laughs> And uh, and I you know I was I was Sherlock Holmes and I directed it as well and you know the, 
the teachers let me do it. We did, sensing, we did one performance. a lot of control here. Yeah, me. well, then that spins off as well into after that. I, that, that evolves into uh, a series of shows that I used to do on Friday afternoons at sec, at, uh, in primary school, which we would just make up um, in the afternoon and then perform. And uh, that, that was a character then called Sherbert Plester, who was based on <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. So that was a kind of detective um, thing, which I have no memory of what we used to do. We just really? used to we used to mess around for just ten play. minutes. We would basically roughly outline the script. I guess very similar to how Larry David does Kirby <laughs> Enthusiasm. I would give people certain things that they were gonna do at a certain point and you have this is your motive and then we'll just we'll improvise it. Um and when the time comes and there'll be, you know, it'll work, it'll be fine. Everyone will love it. Um but I did all that kind of writing comes not just from a need to or a desire to want to be a writer, it was about trying to create roles for for myself at an early age. Um, Pansy Man being kind of the... The big hitter. The big hitter, yeah. And Pansy Man, I then took off to holiday camps around uh, around the country. Cause my ever, during that year out? No, so my other thinking is, when I was trying to work out how do I get to do this thing called acting, that, you know, nobody in my family is connected to it, I've never met a real actor. I met John Pertwee once. He came to open the Mill Drama Group's rehearsal space. Did he? Yeah. So I did meet John Pertwee. But I didn't know actors. I didn't know how it worked, how you got to be it. So I would look at people, you know, who I could see in the public eye and work out what they'd done so that, you know, Rick and Aid, I found out they went to Manchester. And then I also found out, you know, some people... Back then, it was all about the equity card back then. It's what, yeah. From what I could perceive, you needed this thing called the equity card. So how did you get it? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, my research uncovered that you could get it by working on a holiday camp. Uh, so that's something else I did. I, I, worked, I did three years, three summers working on holiday camps. Is this after Dartington? One of them... One of them is the year... It's the year I don't get in. And one of them was actually my first year at Dartington. I did my first year at Dartington and then went off that summer and worked, did my last year as a blue coat for Warner Holidays, who don't exist anymore. They merged into Haven Holidays. I think Haven still exists. But, yeah, I worked as a children's entertainer and, and Pansy Man came with me, so I would... Uh, I would be... I would do Pansy Man at these do, holidays. Do you start camps. a blue coat or do you... You, you start up no, to a blue coat. no. You start as a blue coat. There's only one coat. Oh, isn't that? It's not like Star Trek. We have different. <laughs> um, it's just you just get the blue coat um, with so red pinstripes. What's butt lens? They're oh. red. Um, but here you go. Here's something that I go found um, when I was working on holiday, holiday camps. Um, they were all owned by the same people. What like Pontins, Butlins? It's all the same. Yeah. There's no rivalry whatsoever. Butlins own, basically Butlins own, or used to own, Pontins and Warners and Haven, I think. It was all some weird monopoly. A bit like, you know, when McDonald's owned Pret-a-Manger, you know, it's that kind of... What? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mars own, I don't know, Snickers or whatever it is, you know, these multinationals um, all own these other smaller companies and kind of keep them going as a kind of ruse yeah. there might be some competition out there but it kind of it isn't it's all it all goes back into the same pocket, pocket. picture house cinemas and, and um 
What's the other one? They were owned by... What's the one down View. on Haymarket? No, it's not View. It's Cine... Um, Cine World? Yeah. They own Picture. Picture House, for instance. Do they? Yeah. It's just I lies everywhere you look, know. Craig. It's just people lying to you. <sighs> well, deceit. Luckily, not on this it's podcast. Just, it's just the world of deceit out there. Um, so where are yeah. we now? Where are we? In fact, do you know what I do want to say? Do you remember when I texted you maybe a couple of years ago? I, said, I always remember your text. Craig. <laughs> I said, I'm in Bath and I'm slightly concerned that there's... Morris men and ladies. Morris ladies? Or just Morris uh, men? Let's Do just we... say Morris dancers. Morris dancers. Yeah, it can be either. White men and women. Yes. And they, they'd covered themselves in all black face. Yes. And I found it slightly unnerving. And I didn't understand <laughs> it. I didn't understand it and I didn't like it. So who would you know? You didn't understand the cultural... I didn't understand it at all, ...reference no. point or the background no. as, as to why no, this would it, happen, yes. I found yes. it quite uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. So who do I text who it's knows something about this? I texted you. Yeah. And for the life of me, I can't remember the answer of How why, why they actually do that, well, that black face. What you've encountered there, Craig, is the, uh, the border Morris tradition... Uh, which is different from Cotswold Morris, which is what we dance in Adderbury. Uh, but on the borders, the Welsh-English borders, the, their tradition is slightly different and they do disguise their faces. That's what it's called. It's called disguising. And it, um, it goes back to a time when... I mean, Morris dancing at one point is, is basically a form of begging. You dance outside a pub to get free ale and maybe some food from the people who own the pub and that's why you do it and so but that's how it started it's kind of what they what what yeah it was a group of group of mates who after after work would you know get their gear on and go and have a dance and hope they might get a free meal and a, and a drink out of it and the bells and all that is that just to attract attention well no the bells from... are there to ward off evil spirits all right we're going into a different realm craig as are the knots in the handkerchiefs Right. Because what you, if you've got an evil spirit around, if you, if you have a handkerchief with a knot in, it's yeah. going to confuse that evil spirit because the evil spirit will, will think, why, hang on, what's this? And will try to untie the knot in the handkerchief and by that point you, you can get away from, from the evil spirit, although it will hear where you've gone because <laughs> you've got the bells on. Um, but, yeah, so you, you basically disguised your face because you didn't want your boss to... No, you were begging outside the pub last night. I wonder Essentially. why that, though, if there's not, not another it's way... It's just because of... it's the quickest way of doing it. If you think about it, what, how am I going gonna, to... What's on the floor here is mud. Quick, put it on away. my face. There you go, that'll do it. Boom. OK. OK. Um, and also, it's a kind of... Um, it's to kind of remove the individuality from... Um, from the thing you're meant to be a, a group you dance in unison and you don't want one person standing out so if you all look um the same, same then there's that but i mean it varies where you go if you go up north if you go up to um bake up in um lancashire yeah, it is lancashire they do a, a form of morris dancing there which is only done there and it's called the bake up 
nut nutting dance or backup uh, or backup yeah i've never seen it live but that they they do black the faces there um and they they do little um dance moves which kind of are them listening as if they're down the mine right for and they have they have, is covering <laughs> cupping one ear and, and right then tubber there's cuppage they have uh, coconuts they're called the coke the coconut on the knees yeah on the knees and it's a lot now, of these things are kind of lost in the midst of time and i'm and i'm not also for a second denying that somewhere in the midst of time you know these um people encountered the first person they'd ever seen from the african continent and were somehow kind of in, influenced and inspired by it to you know adopt some kind of you know look that yeah. somehow mimicked it and it's kind of continued for people decades, centuries that, people listening might go why have they just started talking about yeah I mean, just, but, that, well, but, I mean just it's ahead. just normal for me I mean <laughs> <laughs> because is it how many years ago two or three years ago I mean so in 2011 so it's quite a while ago now this is when you started production or you uh, started we know in 2011 we premiered um, wow, God! I didn't know it was that a, long ago. A, a documentary film called Way, Way of, of the Morris, Morris. Uh, which we took to South by Southwest, and uh, this boy had been this time, almost this time, exactly 2011, because South by Southwest is just coming up again. Uh, but it was three years before that that we started making it. And why did? Because we will go back to it, but apart, <laughs> where, apart from your acting, yes. You started out doing short films. You started writing yeah. and being in short films, not necessarily directing the short films, though. No, you have done. I mean, all of this, all this connects in that. Um, so I was writing when I was at primary school, at secondary school, I was doing Sherbet Plester and then Pansy Man, uh, and then when I went to Dartington, we I would write stuff there as well. I had a, a group of mates, and we did kind of comedy sketches we wanted to be the new mary whitehouse experience with the current ones at that time we you know monty python we wanted to do that so i would write stuff there as well and it was all a way essentially as i said writing parts for myself to do um but to the extent that when i left dartington i didn't want to be an actor i actually really? wanted, i wanted to be a writer um because i just i didn't everything anyone will ever tell you about it i didn't want to come to london and sit waiting for a telephone to ring to, to be offered work i just thought it would destroy me it would it, i couldn't do it so I, I wanted to feel that what i was trying to do i had some kind of control over and so i um I, I decided i wanted to be a writer also while i was at dartington i wrote a play which won the national student playwright of the year award in 1993 94 so that's that kind of gave me some Skipped confidence that, that yeah. kind of hang on maybe i maybe i'm all right at writing uh and maybe i'll stick to that that's got to you the confidence uh it didn't it also there was a um, prize money which paid off my uh, student debt as well happy days so thank you for that uh questers theater in ealing um so yeah when i left dartington i i moved to london and i set up a theater company with two mates from Dartington, and uh, I said I wasn't going to act, but I was going to write and produce and, you know, run the theatre company. Um, 
and so that, that's what that's what I did initially. I was I wasn't acting um, at all, and I was I was right. I wrote two more plays. I went and did. I, in fact, I went off. I went back to university and did an, an MA in playwriting. Did you? Yeah, Birmingham University. I didn't. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, I went and did that because I, you know, that's what I. That's what I thought I wanted to do, and there was a period of my life when you know I knew the literary managers at the court and the bush and all these people, and I was kind of in and around that. And um, I was friends with Sarah Kane, who was you know the biggest young writer who'd come along in a generation. Yeah. And, you know, uh, she was a friend and a contemporary, and she did. I went back to Payne's Plough at one point, and Sarah ran a writers' group there, and I was part of that writers group uh and i wrote a play which mark ravenhill directed a rehearsed reading of so there was a kind of a period of my life when i was kind of doing all right in terms of maybe being you know a playwright but um i kind of got sucked back into acting again how if things were going, uh, things well, were on they were a, going to a certain degree, and I was running the theatre company, and we were putting the plays on, but I wasn't quite ever getting in the door at places like the court and the bush, and they knew I, they knew who I was, but they weren't giving me the the commission or the or the slot. Um, Sorry, we're uh, should we wait for that? By this awful car alarm, and as if by magic. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so were you feeling unfulfilled with the writing and if you weren't getting to the places where you wanted to put your productions yeah, on? a little bit. And somebody, a friend of mine... Well, it's all connected, actually. So a, a friend of mine called Rob Curry was doing a, a play. He wasn't a friend at the time, uh, but I knew of him. And he offered me a part in a, in, a, in a new play that he'd done. And I just thought, yeah, come on. I, I might go and do this. I might be quite, quite fun to do some acting again. And where was that? Uh, it was on at the Oval House Theatre on the fringe and I just loved it I just um, I realised that I'd really missed it and I also realised that um, actually having been away from it for a few years I was quite fresh with it as well um, and quite un- I wasn't precious about it some of the other people in the cast had been trying to kind of chip away at the system uh, in the years I hadn't been and it kind of showed in a slight anxiety in their performances and I kind of came in and was um I, yeah I just I just felt like I'd really benefited from not being put through the London agony of yeah. it all um and so yeah so, and so <laughs> there's a lot of years obviously that are passing through all of this talk and and theatre kind of slowly disappears from what I want to do but the writing is still there and so I start writing uh, short films initially as the the acting career begins to kind of take off a little bit I then use that as a way of getting short films made and using actors that I've met on set as actors to be in, in the shorts Sorry to interrupt was this going back to what you initially used to do, which is write stuff for yourself? Or was this just a need for your creativity, just sort of a pathway to it do was, that? It was both. So the first, um, the first short that I, that I wrote was called Ant Muzak, which is a um, comedy about what might happen if Adam and the Ants turned up at a supermarket at 3.45am on a Tuesday morning. 
and I did write that with an intention of being in it, and I and I was in that one. I was you one. Of, I was one of the ants. You are. Um, but then, and the two subsequent films that I made with that same director, Ben Greger, um, I wasn't. I was in, but kind of not in a. I was in a very peripheral role. So we did one about Blake's seven as well, and I was one of the stormtroopers in that. So you didn't see my face. Is that the one on the night bus? Blake 7 is in a motorway service station. Um, Blake's Junction 7, it's called. That's right. Um, oh, no, what's the one on the night bus? No, the night bus is then the, the third part of the trilogy called World of Wrestling. That's the wrestling and one. And okay. I'm very briefly in that one as well. But no, um, I kind of... I, I felt a bit uncomfortable about only writing the things for me to be in, so I was quite happy to just write and then step back. Um... So we made three shorts together, me and Why do you think you felt uncomfortable at that point? Because you never used to. Um, I don't know. I think maybe I also thought I had more, probably I, I could learn more from not being in it and just kind of step back and, and be... Um, I'd always, you know, I'd, the plays that I'd written as well, when I'd run the theatre company, I wasn't, I wasn't in. And right. I'd, enjoy, I'd enjoyed that. And what I'd enjoyed about... What had always worried me about writing for film was, you know, the fact that the writer is not God when it comes to TV and film. Uh, and I'd been used to being able to be sat in rehearsals when we'd done plays and have a good relationship with the director and uh, and, and with the with the actors as well. But and what I had with with Ben, who directed those three shorts, was a good enough relationship for Ben to have me around. It wasn't I wasn't not allowed on set. Um, and so I was, I was lucky in that respect that I, I could kind of enjoy, because I never, I, I never really enjoyed the process of sitting in a room on my own and writing. What I always enjoyed was getting on set or getting in a rehearsal space and seeing the words come alive and being there as some kind of, you know, font of a certain amount of knowledge. Uh, I, I find it quite odd now as a director that sometimes, you know, where, where's the writer? I might have a question about well, you know, this line here. What was the, you know, what might be the intention there? Yeah. What you, and you know, the writers are never, well, very, very rarely there. So, um, I do, you know, I, I guess some writers are maybe difficult to deal with, and maybe that's why somewhere along the line somebody decided let's not have any writers on a film set. But my experience is they're not. I don't really. know. I always like the writer. I was in ADR for a film um, the other week and we were having trouble with a... We wanted to... The director wanted to add a line where my head was was at the back of the shot. Yeah, yeah. One, of one of those. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he kept coming up with ideas and I went, oh, I don't know, I don't know if that's right. And I pitched something in and he went, no, I don't think it's right. I went, no, that's not right. And he went, right, I'll... Call the actual writer. The writer. Yeah. And she immediately picked up and, and said one thing and we, we both went, Yes! That's it. That's it. Because they're, right, they're writers. They're, 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 they're writers. writers. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like... And you wrote this thing, yeah. It came out of your head. Everybody's got, you know, there's a department. Yeah. There's the lighting department. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the writing department. There's the catering department. There's the acting department. We're all departments that come together and create a thing. So, you know, we're all on the same level. 
We should be all trying to, with the same goal, the same intention, to yeah. make the best thing that we possibly yeah, exactly. can. So, um, yeah, that would always put me off the idea of wanting to work in film and TV, but I did have a good relationship with, um, with Ben on those shorts. But then what happens there is um, Ben ends up basically, because of the way the industry works, Ben ends up getting all the credit for those three shorts. Um, and Ben ultimately goes off and has a continues to have a very successful career as a as a director. But um, I kind of felt that my career had gone nowhere off the back of writing and producing those those three oh, shorts. So funny because they were, you know, really they were critically acclaimed. Yeah, well, they, yeah, and, and they, they won. They they did win awards, didn't they? Yeah, and it came out. They, they came out on DVD, which the short films, you know. You've got people they don't, like they don't, don't come out Mackenzie Crook in there, and you yeah. had Johnny Vegas, you had Martin Freeman, Martin Freeman, good, you know, good people, yeah. Um, which is why somebody in their wisdom wanted to put it out on DVD because they knew there was good people involved and it would shift, you know, a certain amount of units. But yeah. it didn't do anything for um, for my career as How a writer. How did you feel about that? I felt devastated by it. It broke. I mean, it broke me for a while, um, and. Did you feel it was time wasted? Or did you feel... I didn't. I felt cheated. I felt cheated by the system. I felt um, I'd been done, you know, I'd been done Done over, over. basically. Um, And I I mean, I had meetings and I had, I did a bit of development work with um, Talk Back and with the BBC, but it didn't, it didn't go anywhere. And I just, I was left kind of feeling, you know, licking my wounds really and thinking... I got shafted there. Um, did it put you off writing anything else? Well, no, I mean, what I then went and did, um, which is interesting in terms of talking to you, is that I decided that I wanted to um, write something else, but write something quite different from those three shorts, because I didn't think in on one level they were representative of really what my writing was. They were a specific strand of what I could do, but that wasn't. I didn't just want to do comedy. And so I wrote this other short film called English Language with English subtitles, which I decided I would direct as well, because if that's the way I have to play the game, I didn't want to be a director, but I thought, okay, if that's your basic, the system is basically telling me you've got to direct this as well, otherwise you'll get ignored. So I wrote that to direct it. And to, and also by this time I was thinking, well, okay, well, let's, let's stop being this guy who's trying to be nice to everyone else. <laughs> be in the thing as well, Tim. Write something for you to be in. Again, go back to that method yeah. and direct it as well. And, and do, just do everything. Just it be your thing. It be your thing and you do whatever you want with it and get good people involved. So get Craig Parkinson in, one Tell of the parts. That, um, and so that's what I did then. And, I, and that was the first time I'd, I'd tried to direct something. And and then that did really well um, around the film festival circuit. It went that played at over forty film festivals worldwide. A lot of them in America, and I went to a few film festivals around that time and had a great time and felt really reinvigorated, really, by the whole thing. And I just felt okay. You've got to play. You just got to play the game. I said, I guess, Tim. You know. And um, but yeah. So from that, I've I've ended up continuing to work. In film, but have moved over into making documentaries. Yeah, One, which and the first of them being this is that was a long way of coming back to talking about Morris dancing. 
Which is, I do want to get onto the the bridge between film and going into documentary. Yeah. But I would want to go back to the acting for a minute because you always strike me as someone who doesn't rest on the laurels and doesn't sit around, indeed, waiting for that phone call. If the acting work isn't coming, you are constantly being creative, doing something else. It's the only thing that's kept me sane in the however many years it is since I've been doing it. 18 years, I think, I've been doing it. Um, so I will, I will always have a project that I'm working on. Always have done. Because to, you, there's a need, you have to do it. You yeah, but to also to the extent that it gives me, you know, a reason to get... I mean, this is... It's it's more complicated now because you know, as again we've touched on earlier. You know, I have I have a daughter now, so yeah. there's other reasons for getting up in the morning, yeah. or you know, somebody makes you get up in the morning for a start. But before that, you know, that I needed to. I feel I felt I needed to have a reason for getting up in the morning uh, more than anything else, and also a, a desire and a passion to want to make things. But it was almost to the extent that um, you know, if I would get a call from my agent with an offer of work it'd be like oh really when you know when do they want to do it ah next wednesday that's really that's a bit inconvenient because i was going to do that and so it's actually getting acting work i'd created in my head this thing that it was kind of almost oh an inconvenience rather than than being oh my god please thank you so much let me get down on my knees and worship at the altar you know and I think, yeah, I do think that's really helped keep me, keep me sane and keep me sane in, in the periods and sometimes long periods when I've had no acting work coming in. I've always had something else that I'm, that I'm working on. And the two things have been very helpful as well, that, you know, I could get people like Martin Freeman McKenzie to be in my short because I'd worked with them as actors or I knew people who'd worked with them as actors, so... It's been beneficial in that respect as well. I've tried to milk that as much as I can whenever I've needed to. But it is well. very healthy, you know. Going back to what we said earlier about, a, you know, a parent wanting something to fall back on. In mm. a way, you've kind of created that for yourself with the writing, because if the 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 dark periods of having no acting work, you've had a creative outlet by creating other work. Yes, and also the, what what has ended up being for me is because I don't I don't make any money from um, my films. They they are my they are genuinely my my art, if you like, you know. And it's a dirty word in this country to call yourself an artist. I don't think um, it is. We've had many people on this very podcast who have been proud to say that they are, and I good, think that's well, a healthy thing. Yeah. Well, I you know I'm 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 proud, and that comes partly from going to Dartington as well that was that was about you know being and you know, they train you to be an artist not just a um a cog in the wheel they train you to be they would they would say they train you to be a maker of theater so you did a bit of everything um and you could muck in and, and get your hands dirty and you know put a show on um so that so so when i when it comes to doing writing or directing it's i don't do it as not that anyone's banging on my door offering me it, but I don't do it as a director for hire. It's something that I am generating, something that I want to do, something that I have editorial control, control over. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and I've been lucky enough that, you know, the acting is the day job, 
which pays the bills. And when I write or direct, it's that's kind of that's the passion. Um, and, you know, and sometimes, you know, I get, I get to do acting jobs that I'm passionate about as yeah. well. But not, you know, not always. Sometimes, but to be crude, it's you know that well that will that will pay the bills for a couple of months. But isn't so it interesting that, that on one hand, with the acting, there's I don't want to say zero control, but a, a very small percentage of control. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, what you're doing, you're gaining complete control over yeah. what you do. Yes, I guess it somehow helps balance the two things. Oh, and actually also helps me, you know, as an actor, understand much more. Not that I don't think other actors don't understand, but, you know, when you see something and you're like, well, hang on, why... Why is my scene being cut, or why has it been shredded down to that tiny bit when I know we shot much more? It's like, well, I understand because yeah. that's what happens when you edit, when you put the thing together that might not have worked, or that was, you know. I think sometimes, you've or, even as an actor, you've just got to leave it there and go. I always think, well, my stuff might not even make the yeah. final cut, and I'm. I've, I've learned not to tell people things that I been in until I've actually seen it and made sure that I am in it. Oh, because do you watch it. stuff on, um, on a completely other tangent? Yeah, I do. do you, I do, I do. Do you feel all right with doing that? I quite enjoy it, actually. I quite enjoy watching well, why stuff. Why do you enjoy it? Do you know, my wife says watching herself on screen is like watching herself be sick. It's really funny. Because um, I, I, I know a lot of people who, who talk like that and I know... You and Susan are in that camp. And I mean, also, I'm not as strong also, as that, but I just find I do find it very, very difficult to even in even in a, an ADR session. Um, I think for me, Craig, it goes actually back to what we kind of talked about right from the start. I wanted to be an actor. You know, I think most people. I, I was a show off. I wanted to be the centre of the attention. That's why I was an actor as a kid. That's why I did it. No other reason. wasn't interested in the craft of it or the truth of the emotion. I was a little show-off, <laughs> you know, and there's still a part of me which is that kid. So, yeah, I do quite like watching it sometimes. If I was funny in a scene, I'm like, yeah. Which you are a lot. I enjoyed that. Unless you're being a I stole that scene. People. Well, that was a good little bit there. It was a nice little bit of work I did. So, you know, I know it's not kind of cool to say that, but that, I think that's... For me, that's the truth but, of the matter. You know, I, I well, quite... it's, it's not about being cool. It's about just being honest. I think that's. A, I think that's really lovely of you and honest of you to say, and not for you to say. Do you know what I watch back because I learn about what I do, and not to do. It's not. You know, you're, it's not no, about that. It's not about that. Woody Allen says he never watches any of his films after he's finished them. I, don't, I just don't. I just don't believe. I don't really believe that. I think it's just a kind of. Something you say to kind of, I don't know. Give this I just find of... it difficult because I, I am so critical about what I do. Not that yeah. this is about me, but I'm just trying to balance it from another. I think I also enjoy. Um, I enjoy watching things back because I enjoy the memories it elicits in me. Of if if it's something that I enjoyed working on. I enjoy uh, the memories it elicits in me of, oh, the day we shot that scene, I remember was the day we did that. Oh, that was a fun day on set. I remember where we were when we shot that. I remember what we had for lunch. Um, you know, things like that. I yeah. kind of, uh, it's like a little, almost like looking back at some photos that you, you make. 
because I don't, I kind of don't do things with gangs of mates that other people might do, and then they'll reminisce about it. I kind of reminisce about jobs that I worked on with people I got on with and enjoyed working with. So actually seeing the finished thing is a way of um, reliving that to a certain degree sometimes as well, which clearly says I'm not, I'm not <laughs> embracing the kind of reality of the thing I'm watching. Part of me is always watching it as, um, you know, I can see the cracks between it and um, somebody was pulling a face at me off screen when we were doing that and I remember that or whatever, you know, whatever it might be, I kind of... But they're lovely little truthful moments just as much as what you're doing on screen. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, the smoke and the mirrors, it's all part of the... The wonder of it. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I just want to go from short film... Yes. ...to documentary. Yes, because I mean, people, people though, still don't know why we were talking about Morris dancing, really. I know. Really. But even though, it's, but, you know, we're still on the storytelling path. But you, yeah. what you've done is you've gone a completely different way from your short films you've started to get into the documentaries. Obviously, the, yeah. Morris, the, Morris, the way of the Morris documentary was from your past, so you had stuff to yeah. Yeah. dig up there. Yes. It was... Um, I didn't intend to get into making documentaries at all. Um, I didn't think that was where it would go. I'd kind of, after making the shorts, the logical next step was to try and do a narrative feature but somewhere along the way this epiphany happened for me to do with the Morris dancing um, and it came from uh, my uncle um, who told me that the team from my village the Adderbury village Morris men were going to go to the Somme to visit the graves of the Morris dancers from the village who hadn't come back from the first world war and when he told me that, it changed something fundamentally in me because I knew that in the 70s, my uncle and his friends had basically revived the Morris dancing tradition in the village as part of the... There was an interest, a revived interest in folk music that was going on in the mid-70s. Um, bands like Fairport Convention, Bob Dylan, you know, plugging in his electric guitar and being called a Judas by the folk crowd. You know, it was... It was folk music was was sexy for a period back then. Um, so I knew they'd revived it because it had died out, but I didn't realise, I'd never realised as a kid, that the reason it died out is it had literally died out because the team of young men had gone to the trenches and they were all, you know, they were all killed. They didn't come back to Adderbury, so there was no Morris dancing for 60 years. So when he told me that, that bit of the story suddenly resonated with me and I realised what an amazing thing it had been that they had done that in the 70s that they had decided to bring this dance back to life yeah. and they had already decided that they they'd managed to track down the the graves or at least the names on the um, the monoliths of, the, of the, the boys from the village not all of them because the names had all been recorded but they managed to find some of the names and they were going to go on this pilgrimage if you like to um, to visit their graves and he basically said to me, do you know anyone because of your contacts who might be interested in filming it? We think it might be something worth filming. And I thought about it for, you know, a week or so. And I kind of thought, well, why don't, 
why don't I, you know, I, when I do it, I know I've not made a documentary before, but I've made shorts and I know people you know, to with tell a cameras. Story. And yeah, so yeah. I said, well, look, why don't we, we can do it. I'll, 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 I'll talk to some friends. We'll, we'll come with you. Let's, let's, let's make it happen. Let's document this. And then that's, that's slowly then, quite quickly, I guess, becomes a much bigger story that we decide to tell um, about kind of my relationship to the Morris dancing. So it became personal because of this. Yeah, we, we, we just decided that was the best way to tell the story, to kind of have, in quite a traditional Louis Theroux style, to have somebody out front uh, who was your window into this world, who was somebody, who was me, who was somebody who had grown up in a village, uh, whose dad had been a Morris... So my dad was a Morris dancer as well as a, a keen am drama. Sorry, I knew that. I didn't all those, say. All those guys in, you know, in the Mill Drama Group, not all of them, but a lot of them were, were part of the same Morris team. They were all mates who did Morris dancing and also did am dram. Um, so I was somebody who'd grown up around it but shunned it really my entire life and never wanted to do it, who then moved to London and become very, you know metrosexual and but my roots were here it was kind of the idea that here's somebody with a foot in both worlds here's somebody who lives in london uh doesn't morris dance but knows where it comes from and why they do it and through me we can kind of try and tell a story which treads that that tricky ground if you like between english people's response Pat response to Morris dancing, which is obviously to laugh at it and, and ridicule it, and we we were under no illusions that that was kind of what you're up against if you start making a film about Morris dancing. People are just going to um, be tittering and you know wheel out the same old jokes. They think they're the first person who's ever said it before. Um, but that didn't happen, did it? No, because we tried to make something a bit deeper and a bit richer. Yeah. And once you get, once you hit people with that first world war, war story we knew we had that in our yeah. back pocket to say okay you're not laughing now yeah um and also but there's an interesting a little addendum to the story in that on a day i was around this time we're making way of the Morris, or beginning to start making it, i was working as an actor um on something called it was called heist it was a one-off thing for bbc uh which was a comedy medieval um, comedy drama Chris Marshall was in it I was in it and it was directed by um, a chap called Justin Hardy who's the son of Robin Hardy who directed The Wicker Man right so there's a good connection there and we were filming in Winchester and one day during lunch break some Morris dancers turned up and Justin knew that I was from a family of Morris dancers and he said, he said come and see the Morris <laughs> laughing you know that the Morris men are out and I said, uh, yeah, we're thinking of um, thinking of doing something about it. You know, I told him the story about the World World War, World War, and he, he basically he said to me, he said, oh great, well yeah, and you should be in it, shouldn't you? And of course, at the end, you dance, don't you? I said, no, Justin, I, no, I don't, I don't dance at the end of the film. He said, no, I mean you do. That's the film, Tim. That's clearly the film. You have to dance at the end of the film, otherwise there's no point. And he was right. So that's basically what the story of the film is. By the end of the film, I don my father's bells because he doesn't dance anymore. 
and joined the team and I'm still I'm still in that team now what is it eight nine years later so I yeah I am a Morris man I am a member of the Adderbury Village Morris men and I dance try and dance at least once a year with the boys um and yeah, I you know I've I have a <clears throat> I've become something of an authority on it because of that film. People like you, whenever they see Morris yeah. dancing in the street, like to ring me up and tell me they've seen it, which is nice. Tell or me. ask me about you know why have they got black faces? Why have those people got garlands? Why have they why got, have they got coconuts on? Why have they got not in the hanky? What's we going know on? now. We yeah. know. Do you call it a stick or a stave? What do you, you call know? it? It's up to you, it doesn't really matter. Tim Plester, thank you so much for coming on. It's always a delight. Thanks, sir. Thanks for having me. And another episode is done. Tim Plaster, if you're listening, thanks so much for coming on and giving up your time and chewing the fat. It was a great natter. And thank you, dear listener. Why, Craig? Why, why? Why are you thanking me? I'm thanking you for all your texts and emails and tweets that we get all the time, but especially about last week's episode. Now, I did tell you, didn't I? I did warn you. It's going to be an epic chat with Danny Lee Winter. And it really was. And a lot of what he said, the messages that I've had from people, they've said, oh, that was so great because I could really relate to that and I felt that was me at some point in my life. And that's what the podcast is all about. It's not about coming on and flogging your wares. It's about humans. It's about human stories, you know, getting to the root of it and hoping that you, the listener, can relate to it at some point. I know I certainly can. I'm as much of a listener as you guys are. So thanks to all our guests. And next week is episode 40 which will be no exception. But look, I just wanted to to say that last week, uh, you know, yeah, we got that that lovely news about the, the podcast awards. But when you have that kind of news and then you have some devastating and, and shocking news within the space of a day, you know, it, it kind of puts things into perspective. I'm sure there's people out there listening who may know, may have worked, may have seen Alex Beckett's work. And it was really shocking to hear of his untimely passing last week. I'd known Alex off and on for years through friends and the other year I was lucky enough to work with him. And... You know, he was wickedly funny and he had great energy. And yes, of course, he was a fantastic actor, but we just need to put that aside because he was he was a really fantastic bloke and I was lucky enough to know him. So I want to dedicate this episode to the memory of Alex Beckett and our love and thoughts are with his family and his close friends so until next week, I've been Craig Parkinson, he's been producer Griff, and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. Until next week, take care and stay safe. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. Cheers.